0: Hey, everyone, Um, Sergeant Major Lance Nutt coming to you from uh, the Sheepdog offices in Northwest Arkansas as we bring our, is this our fifth episode now, Jeff? Jeff is our off-camera producer and uh, has done such such an amazing job for us in making this possible. Uh, I'd say Jeff and Bridget and so many of our staff that are always working behind the scenes to help us bring uh, this podcast to you, and it uh, it's amazing. One on our fifth episode, how already I am uh, I, the the term podcast exhausted is not probably accurate, but. Uh it's very emotional at times. Uh especially our our last podcast with uh Sherry Briley, um, the wife and uh, gold star spouse of uh one of our Black Hawk down pilots. And uh and his story was so Donovan uh Briley's story was so powerful. Uh I left that podcast session just I, emotionally exhausted. And I think, as most people will know, is that when you're emotionally tired, you're physically drained as well. And But as I've thought about that story and some of the others that we've told so far, the one thing that I, I've reflected on myself and I've heard from people who have listened is one word that kind of describes them, and it's, it's wow. People just amazed at the stories, amazed at the, uh, the perseverance that so many of these men and women have shown, either the ones that have served or the ones that, like Sherry, who have supported um, their loved ones who serve, right? And uh, stories like that are, are so important to tell. But today we have a, uh, a very special, and I'm gonna say young man with us, who has um, you know Richard Oakley, uh, also known as Big Oak and Dickie back home. And um, as I'm gonna call him today, Rich. Um, Rich is a is the epitome of a sheepdog. And as we dig into really telling his story, and given, given Rich a chance to tell his story and share some of his experiences. Uh, and when I say as a sheepdog, um, you, you t- we're talking about a man who has a servant's heart at, at just every, every angle imaginable. And when we, you know, one of our, our founding mottos as an organization um, was basically helping others as a way of life. That's what defines what a sheepdog is. And. Rich, I mean your your story is just that. And it, and if I may, I'm going to dig a little into and it's I say personal life. I mean, Rich has made this public on social media, so I feel like in uh, in sharing some of, of of Rich's past and I'm going to say past and current present efforts um, is your time, Rich, in in volunteering and serving the community and communities that you live in and have lived in Uh, and you can correct me where i'm wrong on this uh but it it says that you are still you're working at the loudon county medical reserve corps or within that um that role is that a is that a volunteer role rich yes it is okay and then uh You've, uh, you've worked as, or you still work as part of the Southern States Police Benevolent Association, um, former Explorer Scout with Boy Scouts of America and volunteering with the Scouts. Um, you're also with volunteering with, um, the Marine Corps Toys for Tots Foundation and programs, which does just uh, amazing work all over the country. And, and I've, as Fellow Marines, we've uh, we've all been a big part of that, especially on the reserve side of the house and, and helping underprivileged children all over this country. Uh, you're also part of the Loudoun County uh, Marine Corps League Detachment. Um, uh, again, a, a member and, and volunteer with Boy Scouts of America. And then you have volunteered with the Sons of the American Legion, Squadron 293. Uh, you're a life member of Noble. Uh, you've worked with the National Museum of the Marine Corps. Um, and then you get into, you know, your time in law enforcement, uh, specifically really working with the DEA, um, Drug Enforcement Agency. And and that, it, it all has come after, now, a lot of years in law enforcement realm, as you're going to have a chance to share more with us. but. Rich, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us and giving us an opportunity to hear uh, from you and uh, about the things that you've done. I, you know, I'd like for you to maybe share some of those really impactful experiences that you've had while wearing the uniform. And I, I'm familiar with some of it, and reading more and listening to some of your story. Uh, just wow, you know, people out there listening. <laughs> Rich is is truly a sheepdog and truly a, a, one of our nation's finest when it comes to one of our heroes. And again, if uh, the, the list of things I read to you that he's really focused on now in retirement, as he still stays very busy <clears throat> and continuing to give back. So, Rich, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, thank you. Glad to be here. So tell us a
0: little bit about yourself. Where did uh, where did you grow up? What's what's hometown for you?
1: I grew up in a, uh, a small town in New Jersey, known as Somerville, Somerville, New Jersey. Um, I graduated high school there, and uh, uh, I lost my dad uh, at age thirteen, and uh, was raised by a single family uh, mother. I had a brother and sister also. Uh, my youngest brother uh, passed away at age 48. My sister's still alive. My mom is still alive. Uh, we celebrated her 100th birthday last April.
0: One hundred years. One hundred. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And, Big congratulations, obviously, to her on that, and I obviously hate to hear about the loss of your brother. Um, and, and you're currently residing where?
1: I'm in uh, Ashburn, Virginia. That's in Northern Virginia. I'm about five miles uh, south of Dulles Airport.
0: Okay, and that's that's home. And um, if yeah, you Eastburn. will, okay, yeah, very familiar with that area. You your your time in um, your time in law enforcement began when so, uh, the,
1: uh, one September.
0: 1967. 1967. Okay, and that uh, and give us a little bit of, of history on that journey for you and why you chose why you chose um, law enforcement and kind of what took you on that path.
1: Growing up in my hometown, uh, after my dad passed away, uh, I had three police officers who befriended me and uh they were really good to me. They'd give me rides home from football practice and stuff and uh getting to know them actually started uh my interest in law enforcement um they were mad when I went to serve in another town <laughs> but, uh but 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 they were very instrumental uh also uh dragnet the uh series dragnet was also uh, a, a part of my uh my interest in, in law enforcement. And I came from a family of, of uh, patriots. My dad was a World War II Navy veteran. Uh, my mother had uh, five five brothers, uh, five of which served in the uh, U.S. Army World War II. I have an uncle, a really dear uncle who passed away. Uh, he was a U.S. Marine, uh, 0811 in, in the Korean War. And uh, so uh, the uh, Law enforcement was always my dream job. And back in 1967, you had two things going on. You had the, the war in Vietnam, and then we also had all the disturb- civil disturbances going on in the U.S. And so there was a push for law enforcement. And so uh, my dream job was right there, so I I took it. I uh, went to uh, an academy in new jersey run by the new jersey state police it was on an old uh, air force base uh so uh, and most of my most of my instructors were former marines uh the troopers and uh they, they were tough i mean they had us out there on the uh on the parade deck at uh, 5 a.m pt and uh all that all the other good stuff that goes with it uh and then uh, when i graduated the uh the Academy uh, in November of 67. And I uh, reported for my, uh, my first uh, duty assignment. I remember walking in, and uh, there were five of us that, that graduated from the Academy. And uh, we walk into the, uh, in the building, and there's a, a, a Lieutenant, uh, Bill Conway. And uh, he said, gentlemen. just want to let you know you're closer to jail tonight than you've ever been in your life and I'm like I don't understand that you know but then he broke it down he said and I'm going to tell you why and there's three things that will get you there booze, bucks and broads he said you get any accommodation of those you're in trouble and uh I
0: took uh, I took that to heart. <laughs> well, and I, I would say so that's then, probably um, the one thing we would always say to to young servicemen and women at, at at every category, right? Is those are the three things that will ultimately get you in the most trouble. And uh, probably the the one adjustment for for the female sheepdogs out there is it's the men that are going to get you in trouble, right? Yeah, so right. Uh, so Perfect. being careful with your choices is important. So. Yeah.
1: Yes.
0: Go ahead. And, I did not
1: uh, mean to interrupt you. Oh no problem. So I'm um, six months uh, out of the academy. Uh, let me back up a moment. Uh, there, I was trying to get. I was trying to work my way into the uh, narcotic squad because I had some family members who became addicted uh, to uh, heroin back then, and a couple of them lost their lives. So it kind of gave me a burning desire to work in that that field. And uh, so uh, the sergeant who was the head of the narcotics squad, he said, all you got to do is start making some narcotics arrests out there while you're on patrol. And so I did. Uh, And then one day uh, he called me over to a location that he was at and he had four people with him. And and he, he told me to come over. He says, I want you to look at these three men and this woman. If you ever see them, stop them, shake them down, pat them down, find out what they're doing. Back then in 67, if you were convicted narcotics offender, you had to carry an ID card. Uh, Wouldn't get away with that today, I guess, but, uh, but back then it was, it was law. So, one day, now I'm six months out of the academy. So one day I, I left my shift. I, I was working the uh, 0600 to uh, 1400 shift. And uh, I, I went home, parked the car, went in the house, took off my gun belt, my duty belt, my shirt. but all I had on was my uh, uniform pants and my boots. And I had to go out to a local store. So I jumped in the car. I left my weapon home, I jumped in the car, and as I'm driving out of my uh, neighborhood, I see those four people standing on the corner. And so I pulled over, I got out of my car, and I said, hey, what are you people doing here? What's going on? Two of them pulled pistols out right away forced me into my car. I had a 65 Mustang, forced me into my car, made me get in the back seat. Uh, One of them took over the driver's position. Another one was in the passenger seat. Then there were were, uh, two of them in the back. I was all crunched up and uh, my nightstick was still in the car. So they, they, eventually they started hitting me with that. They were talking about killing me. And so we drove out of the, uh, out of my neighborhood and they turned on the uh, local radio station, and that's when I learned that these people had just robbed a shoe store uh, in in New Jersey, in, in my town, and they and they were waiting for someone to pick them up so they could get out of town. And it just so happened that I came along and became their transportation. Uh, so they took a securitist route all through. Uh, uh, New Jersey went to Trenton. Uh, then we finally wound up uh, in New York City and uh, West End and 72nd Street. And and they wrapped me up a little more and then they jumped out of the car and they took off. I sat there for a few minutes. Uh, you know, uh, I guess I was feeling like lucky to be alive at that time. But and then I, I drove back to my hometown and went to see my sergeant. And I told him what happened. And he said, well, weren't you armed? And I said, no. He said, well, don't you know that there is a, a, a regulation that if you you could lose your job and you're a probationary officer, probation for one year, uh, you could lose your job for not having your weapon. And I told him the story. I was in a hurry, you know, whatever. And uh, so uh, with that, we... Uh, we got together uh, a team, and we went to New York City, uh, uh, Midtown uh, Manhattan North precinct. And I stayed there for about probably a week, sleeping over there. And the detectives over there uh, started pulling in informants and, and people that they knew, and uh, went on went out searching for these these four defendants. And Within a matter of a couple of days, they had them. And uh, I, I was just amazed because I, you think about the size of the city of New York, the number of people, and these four people jump out and get in that crowd, of a mess of people, and they pluck them out just like fishing about. It, it was just amazing.
0: No, I was just thinking, you know, to your point, it it's amazing how our law enforcement in the men and women that work the communities and the streets that they're on, they they do. They they've got a true feeling of the pulse of the streets that they work and the communities that they live in, to where it's they they can feel and see when those ripple effects happen. Right, if something something's just not right, or someone is in the wrong place, or whatever it might be. And I think that speaks a lot to the missing aspect of what people just don't see on a daily basis with our law enforcement community is just how much work is having to go on behind the scenes to make sure that that blanket of security is there and in place. And and no, it's not. It's not a hundred percent perfect. You know, I mean, the human factor of who we are is always going to allow for mistakes, but The amount of time and I think more importantly, the amount of care that these men and women put into their job and how important it is to them that they do a good job. And in doing that, how plugged in they are to that community so that when something like that happens, to your point, um, they get the word that, you know, there's some bad characters out there on the street, um, whether it's informants that they have in place that they've been working with, and uh, or just the the trust level that those communities might have with their, the officers that they know, um, they can so quickly identify and to your point, uh, round up some bad people in a sea uh, of yeah. of people in a in a place like New York, right? So um, that's that's important. I think you know, and you calling that out. That we recognize just how much work is taking place every day that enables our law enforcement community to do the the, the job that they do. So, yeah, go ahead. Sorry about that.
1: And uh, uh, another thing that uh, uh, a lot of people don't realize that back when I started in law enforcement, we didn't even have walkie talkies. We had uh, we had a call box key, and so there there. Uh, there was a, 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 an alarm on a, on a pole. If that rang in your district, you went over to this gray box, put your key in, pick up the phone, and it would connect to dispatch and the dispatch would tell you what they wanted you to do, whether stand on a corner, if radio car is going to pick you up or walk up to so a location, whatever. Uh, all we had was uh, a can of mace, your duty weapon, and, uh, and a device called the iron claw, which was a, a come along device. It looks like a small pair of ice tongs that you put on somebody's wrist and, and turn. And I don't care how big you are, you, you, you were gonna come along. Uh, uh, we, we had no, uh, no vest back then. Uh, our radio cars had no air conditioning, uh, no good time radio And so, and vinyl seats. So in the summertime, I mean, when you got off, finished a tour, you were soaking wet, like you had been in a sauna. Uh, We didn't, we didn't get walkie-talkies until about 1971. Then we had walkie-talkies, then we could communicate. But other than that, the communication between car and car, uh, that was it. You
0: know, I... I think about, you know, history is something that I'm passionate about. And um, I was I was listening to some information on law enforcement uh, a few days back, and I'm, I'm going to get the exact dates wrong, but it was really talking about, um, you know, law enforcement and the, the growth and the expansion that it went through historically in this country. And, you know, when we, we think about technology today right you you were sharing something with me that i just now that i I found really unique is just you think well radios have been around forever right and obviously today's generation i think about my children they've never known a life without a cell phone where you can you can communicate with anybody at any time and information is just at the you know click of a button But to think about, and this is me telling my age, you know, I was born in 1970, to just think about how things were like that with a, you know, you didn't have radios even where you're still using hard fixed landlines uh, to communicate with everybody. And even that was an an advancement when you think probably 30 years before that, um, when, you know, it was just simply word of mouth. You had to go out and find someone to talk to them. But, um, you know, the... The transformation of law enforcement, where it was talked about how law enforcement was almost more of like a, a medical service before it really turned into uh, in enforcing the law and arresting people. And you know, you know, we think about the Wild Wild West and marshals and sheriffs or whatever out in the old the old West and how they all carried guns. But for the longest time in America's bigger cities, you know, law enforcement officers didn't carry guns. They just carried a stick, um, Mm -hmm. you know, a baton. And, uh, yeah, just to to think about how far law enforcement has come today and even, you know, in your lifetime from having served on the streets in the late 60s to where we are today and just imagining the – advancement and whether it's facial recognition and DNA and um, everything that ties into one you being able to serve and protect in in some ways a, a better way but uh, I also do as we talked about how they were easily your department or the department there in New York could snatch up some bad actors. How do you think that has impacted? with so much technology, is there a risk of officers on the streets today not being plugged into their communities the way they used to be, right? Not, not having the familiarization of the people that live and work on those streets, um, and or just, you know, it's created a little bit of a disconnect there. Do you think that rings true?
1: I, I really do. Uh, back when, uh, when I worked, uh, sometimes, I had a walking post other times I rode in a radio car but I preferred the beat because it gave me it connected me with the with the community and uh, and I when I went into homicide I mean I got a lot of great tips from people just in in, in my on my beat you know but now uh, it's so mechanized like if, in my uh, the county I live in Loudon County we have a sh- the sheriff's Department. And they're all motorized. There's no walking beats in our county. Leesburg has its own police department. They they have some uh, walking posts, but uh, other than that, everything's uh, motor, either motorcycle or, uh, or or the car.
0: You know, how long then were you as a an officer on the streets? When when did the transition to uh, drug enforcement, you know, really start to take place in your life and what, uh, what can you tell us about that from the, that decision? Because I, I have to say, I'm, I was still, I was imagining when you were picked up or when you were questioning those four individuals and then they're carjacking you basically, right? They're taking you as a, I mean, you're a prisoner of theirs, right? You're a hostage, mm-hmm. So you you become a hostage, you're a victim of a carjacking, Um, and then, of course, my head's spinning because I had a 65 Mustang when I was in high school. So I'm going, well, what type of Mustang was it? It was one of the things I was thinking about. I hope they didn't put a scratch on that car, right? So it's – but the – the fear. I mean, my my Lord, Rich, you know, and as you say, they've they've now got your police baton and they're beating you with your own baton. Uh, it's it's a little comical to think about now. But at the same time, I'm thinking, my God, there's there's got to be an element of, uh, of fear. So before you, you take us into your, your DEA time, um, I mean, that had to. It had to really wake you up, right? It, it makes you appreciate that the streets can be very violent and even a police officer, right? I mean, you're, you're in law enforcement and, and you're being taken advantage of from the standpoint of someone basically, they've stolen your car, they've taken you, uh, hostage and they're, you know, they're roughing you up. So just a total disregard, unfortunately, for, for life sometimes, unfortunately, uh, by bad actors, but, uh, Just, you know, that that had to have taught you a lot. You had to matured a lot in that that realm of understanding that, hey, um, not only just as a person, but as a law enforcement officer, uh, your life's at risk uh, every day that you're doing your job. And here's another example of you're you're just trying to do your job. Hey, who are you? What are you all doing? And next thing you know, you're wrapped up in something like that. Do you feel like that? that experience matured you a lot and kind of took you to that next level mentally when it comes to appreciating Absolutely. the challenges of being a law enforcement officer?
1: Absolutely. Uh, it, it taught me never to let my guard down, you know, no matter yeah. what the circumstance was. Um, and that, back then uh, in the sixties, uh, there was a lot of anti-police uh, rhetoric going around. I mean, Especially being a black police officer, I mean, even the black community didn't like us because we were traitors to some people. Uh, I remember my one of my uh, one of my aunts, uh, my father's sister, when when the announcement came out in the newspaper that I was going on the police department, she called me up and she said, "This is what she said to me: I'd rather see you be a garbage man." And that blew me away. And that's just. You know, and then once I got out there, I understood what she meant because there was so much uh, disdain for law enforcement. Yeah,
0: that, but, that's powerful.
1: But to. Uh, so I'm, I'm working in the police department now in the narcotics squad. And a, uh, a couple of guys from the Union County, uh, New Jersey prosecutor's office came down to the police department, and they said, uh, they talked to the chief, and they said, hey, we understand you got a guy uh, named Rich Oakley who works undercover. And they said, yeah. And they said, well, we'd like to borrow him. We got a pretty big investigation that we want to uh, start in Elizabeth, New Jersey, but we have we need a black in- undercover agent. So chief called me in and said, would you like to do it? And I said, sure. So I went out there for about two months, and I think the total roundup was about 50-some people at the end of that that case. Now, what was interesting about it was I had nobody on the street covering me, because uh, back then, you didn't have that many black police officers. Elizabeth, so what I did at the end of the night, after I made my purchases, I would go to a detective's house in Elizabeth, I'd turn over my stuff to him, and make my notes, ID the people that, that I had purchased from, and then I would just go home and do it over again the next day. So a while after I finished that job with them, I said to them, I said, how much, how much do you guys make? And they said, well, $10,000 a year. Oh, now when I joined the police department in 67, my salary was $5,000. So when I heard that, I said, you guys looking for $5,000 a year, sure. right? So I asked for a uh, wow. a six-month uh, leave of absence. So, I joined them.
0: So if you could do his job, and, then uh, you were, you were going to double I, your I pay. I was their
1: sole undercover operative uh, for, <laughs> yeah. for all the time I was there. Again, with nobody covering me. Uh, then, while I'm there, here comes three agents from the Drug Enforcement Administration. They said, uh, we have this uh, big job where, where we want to conduct, but we need a black undercover agent. We don't have one in our NORC office, North, New Jersey. So they said, uh, we understand you have a guy that does a lot of undercover work. And they said, yeah. So they asked me, uh, would I mind going over to help them? I said, no. So I was on loan to them for about three months. and. Uh, did a lot of undercover work for them and uh, brought in a lot of uh, a lot of people. As I'm getting ready to go back to my agency, uh, one of the agents walks over to me and hands me an application. He said, "You know, DEA is looking for people like you." And uh, he handed me the application. I said, "You yeah, know, you know, I'm I'm good. I'm happy where I'm at and whatever." But I filled it out and I sent it in. About a year later, I get a a letter. Uh, summoning me to New York City for an interview. And I was like, okay. So I go to New York. They had a panel interview. I think there were seven of us at that time. Uh, They interviewed us individually, and then they did a group interview. They threw out a topic that they wanted us to talk about. They just wanted to see how we interacted with other people uh, by talking about this. I think it had to do with something about baseball. Anyway. So that started my uh, my career with DEA. I, I I was accepted. I went through all the uh, physical uh, uh, agility and all that other stuff. Then I went to the academy in January of '74. Uh, our range uh, exhaust stopped working, so they bust us to to camp upshore on the Quantico Marine Corps base and we used their ranges and I mean, if we're talking January, I mean, it was, it was pretty cold out there. Really cold. But I, I met some really, really, uh, good, great Marines. I mean, they, they befriended us and, and, uh, which really, I, I was happy that I had that opportunity to, uh, to, uh, train on, on that, on that base. And then later on, we had in-service training there where, uh, they ran us through the the, the boot obstacle course. <laughs> that was uh, pretty interesting too. Uh, so that, uh, then I get, uh, my first duty assignment with DEA was in New York City, which I was happy. Uh, during uh, the, the last week of our training, uh, they came in and they said, uh, we're looking for volunteers to, to go to New York and uh, not many hands went up. And they said, well, here, here's the here's the deal. If you go to New York, you're only gonna be there for a couple of years and then you'll be able to choose the duty post of your choice. So my hand goes up. I go to New York. I'm there for a year and the uh, special agent in charge of the North Field Division uh, saw me there one day and he says, I'm going to try to get you over, over, over to the North division. And he did. So from there, uh, I was, I became their first division training coordinator. I taught state and local police officers uh, about narcotics. I taught the FBI when they got involved in, in the uh, narcotics. Um, my forte was undercover surveillance and informant uh, uh, control so (laughs) then i became well i was the division training coordinator and then uh i got tired of that and i said i want to go back out on the street so i went out and uh we had a uh an all hands uh, meeting with our special agent in charge he had a teletype from Washington, D.C. and it said, "North New Jersey is one, and is one of the areas that needs to do more with heroin trafficking. So I went out, rounded up a couple of informants that I knew, and I started to work two heroin organizations. One at night, one in the daytime. Different, different sides of town. And uh, the one that became uh, very, very big. They they were doing $40,000 a day in heroin traffic, $40,000 a day. It was incredible. So I infiltrated the group. The first time I met uh, the guy that was running the organization, it was in a bar called Wolf's Tavern. And uh, the informant introduced me to him, and he said uh, uh, that he's looking for some... uh, some horse, which was a a street name for heroin. And, uh, he said, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I don't know what you're talking about. So, uh, we were in a, in the men's room. And so I pulled out this wad of cash that I had and I said, well, Hey, if you don't have it, somebody does. I'll find them. I put the money in my pocket and I'm walking out. He, wait, 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 let's talk. So, uh, i made my first purchase that day from him but i thought about it later i said that could have gone the other way too i could have got robbed you, you never know because whatever there's dope there's weapons whatever there's money dope there's weapons always i found that to be very true so the investigation money goes talks, on and on right? and on you start on.
0: flashing a big old lot of uh, cash I started to feel some heat
1: in the area. So I was working with Newark Newark, Newark, Narcotic Squad. They were my backup team. Uh, Very good team. And so we came up with a a plan. They said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Tomorrow you're going to drive up in the area with your Volvo undercover car. We're going to have a radio car pull you over and go through the routine and arrest you. And then bring you in. So I drove at the designated time. The radio car comes by, pulls me over, pats me down, handcuffs me, puts me in the car, and we drive away. There was one one fly in the ointment. All these people that were watching this go down, when they saw a police officer get into my car and drive it, they knew that if if this was a bad guy, his car would have been towed. The police don't drive. They don't drive a crook's car, right? So uh, the guy got in his car and he followed the police car and he saw them let me out at the federal building. And he kept that. He kept, he kept that. So the the person that he had uh, making the deliveries to me, he told him, he said, you know, that guy that, that, you're giving the heroin to, selling the heroin to? He's a fed. And the kid said, well, what are we going to do? He says, we have to kill him. He's the only one that can testify against us." So this kid goes in the bar and he gets a, one of those old break open twenty two caliber pistols for a bag of dope. He traded a bag of dope for a pistol. He gets some cardboard. He goes down to this uh, wooded area and he's practicing, shooting at me. So one day I go back. We're supposed to pick up another uh, load of heroin, which I did. And then as I'm leaving, he says to me, hey, come back at five. Then you come back at five. We got a new batch coming in and we're going to give you a a sample. It's really good stuff. So I said, okay. So I I notify my backup team. We we go back to the office. I secure the, the heroin and we go back out. I drive up to the bar. He's standing on the corner. My informant's in the car with me. He says, can we leave him here? I don't like two-on-one two on situations. So I said, sure. So the informant got out, and he's standing on the corner. He's sitting in the passenger seat, and he's giving me directions to the location that we're supposed to go to, and as we're driving, he's asking me, how was that heroin that I delivered to you at McDonald's? And how was it uh, at McDonald's or, or how was the heroin at this location? Blah, blah, blah. Come to find out. He was just trying to make sure he had the right guy. So as we're driving, he's giving me directions. Now I'm looking in my side gear. I can see my backup team uh, following me. We're going up Freeling Heisen Avenue in Newark, and he says, make a left here. And there's a park, Freeland high, a, uh Weequake Park. Uh, in fact, I ran some uh, cross-country races there when I was in high school. Um, so we go into, into the park. He, go, he drives me up. To, he directs me to this cul-de-sac. He gets out of the car and he goes down this embankment. He comes back and I notice his hands are dirty. And he says, come on, come on. And I know I have a problem. I don't know what the problem is right now. I said, it can't be robbery because I don't have any money with me. So he says, come on, come on, it's down here. I said, what's going on, man? You got people here? No, 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 it's, it's down here. So he goes down the embankment. He thought I was right behind him. I stood at the top of the embankment and, and he turned and I saw that nickel-plated uh, weapon in, with the sun glazing on it. He fired the first round. I could hear it go past my ear. The second round misfired, now, I'm, I'm not armed again. So I turned and I started running in a zigzag pattern. He's running after me shooting. There are people in the park, they're all getting in their cars, getting out of here or turning their backs. Uh, as I get down the end of the road, there's an elderly black guy sitting on his car. And he said, are they shooting at you? I said, yes, get in my car. So I got in, I j- jump in his car, And he reaches over the back seat and I grab his arm and said, what are you doing? He says, I just want to get you some water. So he gave me some water. He says, where do you want to go? And I told him uh, what precinct to take me to. And as the story uh, unfolded, he was a local minister who the night before said that he was being troubled. He said the Lord kept telling him, you need to go to the park. You need to go to Wee Craig Park. He said, I, "He said, Lord, I have no idea, but if that's your will, I'll do it. And once we found out, uh, he told us the story. We, we brought him in the office and we gave him a, an award, had his uh, kids with him. And he told the story about how the Lord was beckoning him to go to that park that day. And, and actually, uh, he helped save my life that day. Uh, there were a couple of agents that, quit the job after this incident, they said, there's no way I could do do it, you know? Uh, Because heroin uh, was a very, very dangerous uh, uh, drug to be working back then.
0: That was kind of our, that was the meth of that day, right? It was destroying lives and just doing so much damage to communities. And I mean, the power behind that, as you shared, that you know that having that minister there that saved your life. What I, I am curious though about your um, your your backup team that was following you. They had you marked to kill because they knew who you were, and you had your um, your backup team. Were they able to engage with this guy? Did they catch him?
1: So uh, the backup team uh, they they did uh, after the purchases. They would follow this guy to see where he went. And he, he went to an apartment building in Newark. He didn't have a, a uh, an apartment. He was sleeping in the boiler room. So we went to the boiler room and executed the search warrant. He wasn't there. But the boots that he was wearing, the clothes that he was wearing that day were there. We found a greeting card from his girlfriend with her phone number. So we got a look up on the, uh, on the card. We knew where the girlfriend lived. So uh, we go to the location and uh, one of the guys <laughs> takes out a, uh, a credit card and he just opens the door. We open the door. This kid, he's sitting on the bed with the phone off the hook, saying to his girlfriend, I'm not armed. They're here. If you hear shooting, they're, they're killing me. I don't have a weapon. One of the guys walks over and pulls the phone line out, out of the wall. And uh, when I saw him, I just lost it. I just grabbed this guy. I pushed him up against the wall. And I tuned him up a little bit, and uh, and we uh, we took him in. Uh, but uh, so then it comes time for, to uh, to prosecute. And I go down to U.S. attorney's office and one of the attorneys, uh, U.S. uh, US attorney said, oh, man, you messed the case up. You hit him, you know, blah, blah, blah. So this one uh, U.S. attorney said, hey, what better identification is that? He saw the guy that tried to kill him and he went after him. I'll take the case. And he did. And uh, the guy got convicted. But back then... The only charge that federally was assault on a federal officer, which carried a 10-year maximum. The kid got 10 years in Danbury, Connecticut, in federal prison. The prison psychiatrist uh, would stay in touch with us and they told us the guy has one mission. When he gets out, he wants to finish that job. And uh, that's all he talks about. And he wound up being a hero in prison because once people found out he tried to kill a DEA agent, he was. He, got, he could get anything he wanted out of the inmates. He, he was a hero.
0: Yeah. I did. <clears throat> so they couldn't get him for attempted murder. wasn't a charge they could put him with. and uh...
1: If the state would have taken uh, the case, we could have gotten more out of it. But you know, you had those tor- turf wars going on between state and feds. Feds want to take the case because it's it's one of our guys. But if the state Took it. He would have gotten, He would have got more time out of it. But the law has since been changed so that something like this would have carried more uh, more time than it than it did back then. When he he said that when he when he gets out, he was petitioning to get out of prison to go back to New Jersey. So the uh, victim's witness, I mean, not the victim's uh, assistance program, denied that. So they called me one day. Now I'm in San Francisco as a, uh, a supervisory special agent running a group of agents. They called me up and they said, uh, Michael Owens is being released in, in next month. And uh, he's not going to New Jersey, but we're, we're releasing him in uh, uh, Richmond, Virginia. And I, I laughed and they said, what are you laughing about? I said, because about that same time, I'm going to be in Arlington, Virginia. (laughs) I said, hour and a half away, maybe, you know, but I figured uh, chances of us meeting would probably slim to none. I didn't back then when I was working, I had a huge, you probably saw some of the pictures with that huge Afro that I had back then. And, and, uh, since I was inside, I, I I was cleaned up, so I didn't have all that uh, uh, hair to go with it, and the sideburns and lamb chops and all those other. Uh,
0: you were a different man at that point. So, well, um, you know, Rich, uh, you know, your stories, I think, that are are the ones that so often, uh, you know, they're glamorized on TV and in movies, but you know, when you, when you hear about what it is that truly through an individual like yourself, you know, that, that service and sacrifice that we talk about that is so important in defining our nation's sheepdogs, it, um, it, is, it is so important that we, that we not forget, right? That we not forget well, the amount of harm's way that you're putting your own life uh, at risk with. Right in in the way that you serve. And the unfortunate side is when we we think about the number of law enforcement officers that you know are are dying and being killed in the line of duty um, on a on a regular basis. It's it's just atrocious from a standpoint of how our law enforcement is is mistreated, misunderstood, and it's you know, due to an ignorant you know, segment of our, our population and society. But yours is a, your story is an example of a, a little bit of luck and prayer, you know, to that point, maybe a, a little bit of intervention by God, right? When a bullet misses your head and then the next round misfires, and then you've got a, you've got a, a man of God, a minister there that you, you're able to jump in a car with and um, get out of the area, right? So I, I can't say enough about how important it is for our our listeners to hear stories like yours. And on that note, we're going to pause just for a moment. And uh, we're going to come back and finish up our segment with, uh, as I told you, uh, Big Oak, as I want to call Rich, um as one of his many nicknames having served. And um you can you can tell from the the experiences of Rich on the street in service that um he has developed some very special bonds with the men and women that he has served with and the, the men and women that he has trained. And so on that note Rich, give us just a few minutes. We'll be right back to uh, finish up today's episode of Sheepdog Nation and Uh, As I said earlier, just thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, But we'll be right back in just a minute uh, to wrap up today's segment. Thanks, Rich. Be right back. Hey, we are back with you, Sheepdog Nation. And uh, wow, we've got uh, Richard Oakley with us. Uh, or as we, uh, as his friends call him, Rich, and/or for his longtime friends out there, Big Oak. Um, so, as we start this uh, to close out today's episode uh, or this month's episode of Sheepdog Nation, I'd like to pause just for a moment to recognize uh, the sponsor for this segment is uh, Broadway Contracting um, out of Salem Springs, uh, Arkansas. Big thank you to Broadway Contracting. They are a a very important sponsor of ours, have been for many years. And, um, you know, what's important about our sponsors and donors is that they really, they make it possible for us as an organization to do what we do. So taking time to say thank you to the people that uh, support us. Uh, And in supporting us, obviously, are supporting our nation's sheepdogs, our military, men and women, our veterans, and our first responder communities. Um, We couldn't do it without you. So a big thank you to uh, Broadway Contracting. Um, Rich, you know, I started out the segment uh, and really kind of bragging about when I was reading through the list of just how you you were still giving back. And I, you know, I was... I was exhausted reading about how much volunteering and supporting you're still doing. And I I say that because I'm like, I thought I kind of did a lot and (laughs) I just want to say, you know, thank you. Thank you. Um, Thank you for the sheepdog that you are. Thank you for the way you continue to serve and give back. I mean, 30 years of law enforcement, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, I mean, That that's your that's your adult life. I mean, that's, you know, the the prime adult life, your years, right, of you give you gave the best 30 years of your life to serving your nation. And I think that's where people kind of oh, they gave 30 years. No, they gave the best 30 years of the life that they've been blessed to have. And I think that's what, you know, people are, just don't quite appreciate is, um, you were giving the best of everything, uh, the best of yourself in giving back. And so, uh, a heartfelt thank you for me, uh, uh, you know, I like to think of myself as a friend of yours, and um, the unfortunate side is, you know, we've not been able to to meet in person yet. But we've been uh, we've been friends on social media for a long time, and you've and you and I have engaged in different things and sharing letters and um, experiences. And i I respect you, admire you, and uh, appreciate the opportunity that I've had to know you. And, you know, today's been special for me and just giving me a chance to kind of hear more of your story and connect on a more personal level. Um, we were talking a few minutes ago about how <clears throat> you heard about our organization through FLIOA, the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, and they are a uh, sister organization of ours. And so um, you were a member of Flioa, and we were offering a uh, a special membership uh, package to members of Flioa that wanted to join our organization. And I was I was laughing uh, for those of you that can't see Rich on this podcast. If you're listening to us, he has one of our original uh, proper proper is the. Uh, the company that was a huge sponsor of ours in our early days that they make um, military and first responder uniforms and equipment. And Rich is wearing one of our proper sheepdog polos from, you know, probably close to 11, 12 years ago. So, uh, I love those polos proper, you know, like I said, it's done a lot of great stuff for us. So a little bit of shout out to them and kudos for the, their support. But, um, Again, I appreciate you. And and can you share with us just as we close out this episode a little bit of why is it that you continue volunteering the way you do? Why is it that you are, I I mean, I think I know the answer from why it is that, you know, I I still continue to serve in my capacity after, you know, after serving in the military for so long. But why is it for that for you? Why, Why do you do it?
1: I'm always trying for some reason, I'm always trying to give back to the community and I haven't figured out a way to turn that off. And it's, and so I just keep going, you know, uh, uh, I travel an hour to go down to the uh, National Museum of the Marine Corps to, to, as a docent, uh, hour one way. And, uh, and I enjoy that. I mean, meet a lot of great people, meet a lot of great Marines and, uh, And and just to immerse yourself in the Marine Corps history is uh, phenomenal, phenomenal. Uh, I suffer from PTSD because uh, back then, those traumas that I went through never got resolved until 1991. When I went to DEA headquarters, they had clinicians on staff. And uh, I knew I needed help. And I went in one morning at six o'clock in the morning and talked to them and uh, i I always resisted that uh, and I'm glad that uh the the agency eventually made that mandatory if you were involved in any kind of shooting uh, but it it opened my eyes it made me understand me a little bit more uh, it, it made me understand why I continue to uh even people would ask me why did you stay on the job? Even in, after that police department incident, I said, because it was my desire to help, you know, uh, to help people, to want to help people. Even though when you say that today, people people kind of shrug, shrug their shoulders and say, oh, you just want to carry a gun or a badge and, you know. It, but there, a lot of people go into this job, and I think it's a calling. Actually, I, I believe it's a calling. Uh, some people uh don't stay in long because they they're disillusioned when they get in and when they find out what kind of treatment they get from the outside. But uh but I, I stayed with it and uh I, I still continue to, to give back to the community that I think gave a lot to me.
0: Well no, and that uh, yeah, I can feel it. I can feel the passion, you know, and and you for, for being able to continue giving back. And it it speaks so highly of who you are as a, as a person and your character. And, and you said it, I mean, uh, law enforcement, law enforcement profession is not an easy job. Um, I have, I've said so many times from my platform as a 30 year Marine Corps veteran that, uh, I can do the Marine Corps job, go serve in combat all day long, but I couldn't do your job. I couldn't do the the role of what so many of our law enforcement deal with, whether it's child abuse, um, uh, battered spouses, uh, you know, being an undercover agent and and having to put your life in harm's way in such an intimate. Uh, manner, right? Where you're having to build relationships with people that ultimately you're going to have to arrest potentially and, or God forbid, have to kill uh, in order to save your own life, right? If your life is being threatened. And uh, I think we as a society, I've um, got to figure out how to do a better job of respecting uh, our law enforcement community. Um, you know, I I have so much respect for for what our men and women do, and so many different uh, law enforcement roles out there. Now, of course, are there bad apples? I mean, we talk about this, and this is that unfortunate side for the law enforcement community today. Is that, like you said, law enforcement was looked down on back in the '60s, and it's kind of like you know the military was. You had the Vietnam era and all that going on, but the unfortunate side is we've come back full circle again. Whereas I think 9/11 was the peak of respect for a lot of our our first responder community, our law enforcement men and women, and our our fire and rescue and EMS uh, men and women, and now we've, we're in this segment of history where our so many and and just the first responder community, but especially the law enforcement community is is looked down upon again, and that's just so unfair. Uh, every every profession has. You know some a few bad apples, and those few bad apples, unfortunately, spoil it for so many of the men and women like yourself who are willing to quite literally put their life on the line for others and and die if necessary. And so, again, from myself to you, and for in representing this organization, to all of our men and women out there in uniform, uh, and today specifically, our. Our, our men and women in law enforcement, thank you. Thank you for what all of you do uh, and for what all of you have done uh, to men and women like Rich who have sacrificed so much of their life uh, to serving uh, our great nation and the communities that they've lived in. Um, we appreciate you. And uh, Rich, today was an opportunity for us just to, through your story uh, to remind everyone, how important men and women like you are to our, you know, to civilization, right? You know, without, without the ability to enforce the law, which is, is so important, uh, we wouldn't be uh, who and what we are. So uh, in closing, anything that you'd like to share with our audience or uh, anything that, you know, um, that you'd like to say as, as we close out today's podcast?
1: Yes, I'd, I'd like to tell uh, all my brothers and sisters out there who are currently working to uh, keep your chin up, uh, be safe, stay vigilant, keep your head on a swivel, and uh, don't let your guard down. And God bless you for what you're doing.
0: Amen to that. And, uh, you know, we, yeah, opportunities like this, we we just don't have enough of, right? And Uh, We as an organization are going to continue to find all sorts of different ways to improve the lives of our our men and women in uniform in whatever way we can. I will, on this podcast, so on the air, Rich, I'm going to challenge you to consider, one, going going through our Warrior Path program. And uh, now I I share that because... um, One, I think you, I think all humans benefit from the post-traumatic growth uh, model and language, but our Warrior Path program is specifically for our fellow sheepdogs. And I I know you would gain something from it, but I'll tell you what you, I think if you're able to go through it, you would continue to be a beacon for us and helping to inform so many like-minded sheepdogs out there of the importance of self-care and if you went through our Warrior Path program, I know you would go home and help us spread the word to get more of our sheepdogs, more of our nation's heroes into a program like Warrior Path that can help them on their journey in overcoming the challenges of post-traumatic post stress uh, and teaching them how to live their best lives. So consider that for me because I would love to see you in one of our Warrior Path programs. I know that... Uh, and then we talk about our outdoor adventure programs. I know you and I visited a little bit about going to Yellowstone with us during the winter, but I, I'm going to invite you again. We have a Yellowstone package this summer as well. So a Yellowstone package uh, starting this uh, you know February for a winter package and then our summer package in Yellowstone. And so the invitation is out there for you for, I know you couldn't make the winter package, but if you'd like to join us in the summer, Love to have you out there. And uh, for any of our fellow sheepdogs out there that uh, would like to do more with us as an organization, please go online, check out our website. Uh, We have our Outdoor Adventures that are running year-round. They are in high demand. So um, if you want to go on an Outdoor Adventure with us, you got to get your name in in the hat now. And, um, you know, within the next six to 18 months we'll try and get you into one of our slots and then our warrior path program um, about mental wellness and helping you overcome some of your job related and life related traumas uh such an amazing program and uh it is changing lives changing families and so i hope all of you will will check that out as well but uh rich Lord help me my friend, thank you so much for today. I appreciate you again for your service and sacrifice, and we uh, we are so thankful that you were able to join us on Sheepdog Nation podcast number five. So uh, thank you again, and I look forward to us connecting um, in the future, very near future.
1: Thank you, and uh, thank you for the invitation to come on. And uh, uh, brothers and sisters, if, if you're struggling out there, Please get help. Please get help because uh, I struggled with it for, for many years with alcoholism. Uh, there was a point in time when I almost uh, just, I wanted to take my life, but uh, but I uh, get that help. Get that help out there if you need it. Uh, and and uh, Sheepdog Impact Assistance would be a good start for you too.
0: Amen to that. Thank you, my friend. All right. To everyone out there and Sheepdog Nation land, thank you all for what you do. Thank you for listening today. We're out.
2: We're going to be going over a list of questions together. Do you find yourself being super alert or watchful or on guard, feeling jumpy or easily startled? No. Having difficulty concentrating or trouble bawling or staying asleep? No. Are you feeling distant or cut off from other people? No. Are you having strong negative beliefs in yourself, or other people, or the world around you? Get
1: off me! Sophia! Don't tell me what it is!
2: Have you been blaming yourself or someone else for the stressful experience or what happened after it? Shit happens, okay?
1: That's the fucking job. Are we done?
2: Uh, Sophia. This is your blood? You're okay, I'm just gonna give you some oxygen right here. Nice deep breath, Sophia. Look at me right here. Can you tell me what happened? Welcome to Boulder Crest. Thank you for taking a knee and choosing to be here with us. Over the next week, we are going to be creating a safe and trusting environment, one in which you can be open and ultimately turn your struggles into strengths. Hold it. Keep holding. Fight those shakes. Show me you are warriors. That's why you're here. That's all right. That's all right. Go ahead, bring this down. When we're holding that tension and we're holding that stress, if we keep it in, we're going to break. We need to be able to release the tension. Horses have mastered living in the moment. If we can just grasp a piece of it. No lecture, no book is going to be able to give you this connection. symbolize making peace with our past so that we can create our own future. These struggles, these traumas, they don't define us. Take a big inhale. Exhale. Shifts happen. Recognize those shifts occurring and embrace them. We look to our past to understand, not to place blame.